This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and uh, I'm delighted today to have with me Dr. Jeremy Kilpatrick, who's Regents Professor of Mathematics Education at the University of Georgia. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Jeremy is a Felix Klein Medal recipient from ICME and a NCTM Lifetime Achievement Award winner, has had quite a career. So we're going to talk over um, some of the aspects of that career, and I want to start, Jeremy, right back at the beginning. What is it that got you to pursue the academic life in mathematics education and go for your doctorate degree? Well, uh, the short answer is that when I went through the teacher education program at Berkeley, which is where I graduated, I already could tell that I, I could probably do a better job of working with prospective teachers than the person I was working with. I had a lot of good instructors at Berkeley, but not for my mathematics methods preparation. And so I, I said to myself, I can do this. I, once I get some experience teaching, I'll be able to do it. But the, the longer answer is that I went through schools in California and uh, went to a junior college where I had a really the first really fine mathematics teacher, Art Flum, that, I, that I'd ever had, and I ended up taking everything that he taught during the two years I was in the junior college there before transferring to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to Berkeley, uh, I had more mathematics than anything else. I had lo long before decided I wanted to be a teacher. My mother's a teacher, my brother and sister are teachers, everybody in the family just about is a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I, I was headed for education, but it could have been a lot of different subjects. and. Anyway, I ended up in mathematics because that's what I had the most of, and uh, I enjoyed it and did reasonably well in it, and so ended up becoming a math teacher. I got a job in the Berkeley Public School System, and while I was teaching there, I earned a master's in education at Berkeley. And at one point, I was thinking about going on for the doctorate because, as I say, I figured I'd become a teacher educator in mathematics. Mm -hmm. And I went in to talk to the dean of the College of Education there, um, uh, William Brownell, oh. I had, who had taught me the general psychology course, and had also I'd taken a course from him on research in arithmetic. So um, I told him that I was thinking about going to Yale University, which was where the school mathematics study group was located because I was interested in the work they were doing. They had just started up. And, mm -hmm. he and this is like the new math out, ideas, right? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. He pointed out to me that Yale didn't have a program in education. So I rethought all of that, and, and it turned out that Stanford University was running uh, what were called academic year institutes. And I knew a little bit about George Polya's work, and he was teaching in that academic year institute. So I ended up going to Stanford, going through that institute, staying on to get a, a master's in math, and while doing that, uh, working as a teaching assistant to, to Polya, which was hmm. a fantastic experience. And oh, I, wow. I ended up co-writing a book with him 
the Stanford Mathematics Problem Book, which is still in print with, by Dover, and uh, it's one of the things I'm most proud of having accomplished. But anyway, so what happened was, during the year that I was working on my master's degree and in that institute, Ed Beagle moved from Yale to Stanford, so he came my way instead of me going to Yale. Uh, this SMSG came to Stanford, and I was one of his first doctoral students, along with Tom Romberg and, and Jim Wilson and some mm -hmm. others. So I ended up getting my, my degree at Stanford uh, with Beagle as my major professor and Polya on my, my committee. And one more point is that I had always figured that I would be a, become a, a teacher educator in the University of California system because I wanted to uh, I wanted to give back to the people of California who had uh, supported my public education all the way through the university. Uh, when I went to Berkeley, there, there was no tuition, and the, the student fees were $37.50. So I really owed the people of California quite a debt. Uh, right. And wow. But what happened was the year I graduated, 1967, Ronald Reagan was elected governor, and he essentially ran against the University of California at Berkeley. He was going to straighten that place out, and he ended up putting in a tuition. But more than that, he froze the jobs. And the previous year, there had been a job at uh, Santa Barbara, and I had been thinking about applying there. But when Reagan froze the jobs, I had to look outside California for, for my first job. I ended up going to Teachers College, where I was for eight years. And that launched me into a, a career of looking internationally at education. So it turned out to be a pretty good uh, thing. But I have to say, I'm still sorry that I wasn't able to repay the people of California for the great public education they gave me. Yeah. Just back on your dissertation for a second, what was the focus yeah. of your dissertation? Well, it was about problem solving. I was okay. very much influenced by Polya, and what I did for my dissertation was to interview a bunch of eighth grade kids who happened to be participating in a, the National Longitudinal Study of Mathematical Abilities. So we had a lot of information about them uh, and what they could do in mathematics. And so what I did was sit down with them in a tape recorder. This is the early days of tape mm -hmm. recording. And interviewed them, asked them to think out loud while they solved a set of mathematics problems. And then I analyzed developing a framework, I analyzed the heuristics that they used uh, in solving those problems, and I was particularly interested in how many of Polya's heuristics uh, that he writes about and how to solve it, how many of those heuristics uh, did they use and when did they use them and so on. So it was a different kind of study because it, it was not experimental really, it was a, it was a uh, qualitative study, and those were unusual at that time. Mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about, because I'm interested in problem solving and reasoning, and I've thought a lot about those polya heuristics, and I've worked with students on them, but I can't imagine doing research and presenting to a committee and taking questions from a committee where polya is actually on the committee. <laughs> yes, that was quite an experience, but he was a great guy. He was, he was a wonderful influence on me. I, I, I learned more from him. Uh, not just about mathematics, but about everything uh, than anybody else I ever had as a teacher. 
Wow. So then when you did go get started um, at Teachers College in your first few years of academia, did you continue focusing on problem solving, or what would you say was kind of your scholarly focus at the beginning? Well, yeah, at first I worked on problem solving and did some reviews and that sort of thing, but gradually I got involved in uh, mathematical abilities, partly because while I had been at Stanford, I had uh, been editing the translations done at Chicago by Isak Virshup, uh, the translations of the Soviet research in teaching and learning mathematics, and we were putting those into publications from the School Mathematics Study Group. Ed Beagle had agreed to publish those, and I ended up with Isak and Ed uh, working on the editing of, of the, those publications, and that sort of got me into looking at mathematical abilities. In particular, the Soviet psychologist Krutetsky uh, wrote a book on mathematical abilities that was quite effective, I thought, and I spent my sabbatical, which uh, I was in Cambridge, England, in my sabbatical, 73-74, editing the translated book, and that was that was a great experience, both being in Cambridge, England, and editing this book on mathematical abilities. So, in a way, I got into the whole question of mathematical abilities, not just problem solving. Mm -hmm. And in terms of editing, so the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education got started in the 70s, but then in the 80s, you were actually an editor of that journal for quite a few years, right? Yes, I was, and I, I don't know that many people realize how precarious the status of that journal was in the council. There were people, they had just moved the headquarters from Washington, D.C. to Reston, Virginia, and there were people in the, the central office there who really didn't want the JRME to, to keep going. They thought it was, a, it was waste, a waste of money. It was not an official journal of the council at that time. And it just was precarious. It was just seen as a big expense. And so uh, Jim Wilson, who's my colleague here at Georgia, he and I were students at Stanford together. He really turned that journal around, and I was lucky enough to follow him as the journal editor because he saved it, and I just pushed it a little bit further. Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit now to around 2000, 2001, because I imagine a lot of people recognize your name and your work because of your contributions through the National Research Council and the Adding It Up report. So I was just curious, behind the scenes, what was the process like developing that report? Well, we talk about it a little bit in the, in the foreword to the book, but it was, it was basically a, a decision to try to get a committee together to see if we could resolve some of the issues and see what the research is that supports the efforts that were being made to transform the curriculum in, at that time. And uh, a big issue that was uh, we were addressing was should teachers teach procedures first? Should they teach concepts first? Or should they teach both of them together or what? Anyway, our belief was that they should not only teach both of them together, but they should also be teaching strategies and reasoning and problem solving and a lot of other things. So what we ended up doing in order to get away from this binary, should I teach procedure or should I teach concepts, in order to get away from that, we mm -hmm. created a model which was a 
a strand model, a braid of five different uh, categories to try to show people that proficiency in mathematics involves not just knowing the concepts, not just being able to perform the procedures, but also being able to decide which procedures need to come when, and also to be able to reason. Our, the mathematicians on the group, it was a wonderful group of 16 people. We disagreed on many, many things, but the mathematicians uh, argued that we needed to have reasoning as a strand in the in the model, and so uh, we didn't want it to be just logical reasoning, which is what they were arguing at first. We wanted it to be broader than that to include plausible reasoning, inductive reasoning, all kinds. So we ended up calling it adaptive reasoning to try mm -hmm. to capture the idea that we were interested in teachers promoting all kinds of reasoning from the earliest grades. And also then, we put another strand in, and this is probably the most controversial and least well understood strand of productive disposition. The teachers on the committee were adamant about putting something in this, the model to indicate that if that kids need to come out with the feeling that they can do this, they can do mathematics, and they can enjoy it. And uh, the mathematicians weren't so sure we should put that in there, but the teachers were were insistent that we had to have, uh, it wouldn't do for people to be proficient in mathematics without liking the subject and feeling that they could do something with it. So we put in productive disposition. That turned out to be something of a problem because at one point uh, some of us were working on the framework for the National Assessment for Educational Progress and we ended up not being able to use the strands because nobody in the national assessment knew how to measure a productive disposition. That's a, mm -hmm. an interesting question, how do you measure that? And some people are working on that today, but at the time we had nothing to go on, and so it ended up not appearing, except in a modest way, in the national assessment framework. But I am happy to say that it has shown up in the uh, mathematical practices of the Common Core. Right, like the perseverance especially as one of them. So fast forwarding 13 years or so to the current day, are there some things from adding it up that you're pleased to see that have really made an impact on the field, or are there some things from adding up that you were hoping would make more of an impact that haven't really paid off? Well, I, I don't know if anything hasn't paid off. There are things that I would do differently if we were doing it over. Uh, one of the criticisms we got was that we hadn't paid attention to historical and cultural aspects of mathematics, and that's certainly something that's not there. And if we were to do it over again, I would argue that we should put it there. But, you know, we were in a terrific hurry. We were supposed to get the whole thing done in one year, and it ended up taking us 18 months just to get a complete draft and another six months to get the uh, reviews and make the changes in the draft. So it ended up taking two years instead of one, and it would have taken even longer if we'd added in the question of historical and cultural parts of mathematics. So that's one thing that I would do over. And then another thing that we might have worked on a little harder is we used the same strand model for, essentially the same strand model, to talk about proficiency in teaching mathematics 
as a parallel to proficiency in doing mathematics. And if we worked on that a little harder, we might, well, we got criticized for doing that, and I think we could have maybe done a better job with that. On the other hand, I think there's, there's something valid about the way we approached it, because uh, I uh, ended up going to Singapore at the time that our report was released, only to discover that the Singapore math framework also had five components in it, five that were very close to what, what we had in mind. They had not known what we were doing. We had not known what they were doing. And it's interest, it was, as I say, sort of validating to discover on the other side of the world that people were thinking about the same, taking the same view of what it means to learn mathematics and be able to do it. Yeah, wow. My guest is Jeremy Kilpatrick from the University of Georgia. Another thing around the same time period in the early 2000s that you were involved in was uh, editing the research companion to Principles and Standards from NCTM. So I was wondering how you saw that research companion playing into these reform efforts of 2000, uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how things are similar or different in the current reform efforts around Common Core. Well, in 1995, after the NCTM had produced the, the first curriculum and evaluation standards and the teaching standards and the assessment standards, the last of which I worked on, NCTM appointed what was called a commission on the future of the standards. And that group, and, and this is discussed, uh, by the way, in the, re in the beginning of the research companion, that group began to get complaints by people that research was not being highlighted, that the standards documents that had been produced, people were asking, where is the research that backs this up? So what happened was, uh, and we were, and several of us were attending NCTM meetings and trying to get the sense of the field as to what was wanted, and people were saying, we need a, a discussion of research where we don't think it ought to go in the new standards document that was due to be published in, in 2000. It was drafted in 98 and reviewed and then final version published in 2000. And people were saying, well, we don't want the research reviews in that because that'll just gum up the works and, mm -hmm. and uh, people don't need to read all of that. But on the other hand, for people who are interested in the research, we need to put together some kind of document that tells us where is the re related research to the, the standards. So what I did was go to the National Science Foundation and ask for a grant to hold a conference in Atlanta, we held it in 98, to bring together people who could work on the question, how do we back up the, the standards with some uh, research? And so we ended up calling it the Research Companion. It's a separate document. We used some of the papers from the conference in Atlanta in that document, but we had to go out and get a lot more uh, reviews than were initially available, and so the research advisory committee of the council went out and got commissioned various white papers to to help the writers of the standards, but also to eventually go into our document. Our document took far too long to produce. It, it wasn't published mm -hmm. until 2003, but 
much of the material was available to the writers of the standards before they finished up in 2000. And okay. um, what we had to do was fill out, fill in some gaps and, and try to uh, get a more comprehensive document. So it, it came out late, but uh, I think it's quite a good accomplishment, and uh, I don't think we've seen anything like that recently. The Common Core uh, materials, although there's some reference to research, don't really do the research review that we did for the research companion at all. They don't really do that. Yeah, they kind of... Um I mean, Common Core, I think, has some noble goals and some really good ideas that they're putting forward. But in terms of research, they basically, you know, state that they're basing this on research, but it's not explicit really what right. research they're drawing on or how they're incorporating that. Right. Their, their reliance on research is sort of indirect. And it, it, they rely a lot on the adding it up document, which it makes me very happy. And I was on the validation committee for the Common Core, so I've looked at it, and I... I think it's given that it was produced in one year with a relatively small staff and not much time to get reviews out and completed uh, I, I think it's quite a quite a good document but as some of us on the validation committee felt there needs to be some way for it to be revised because no one can produce a, a flawless document in a, one year's time. And besides, it it's going to need to change as, as we implement it. I don't know of another project in mathematics uh, curriculum reform that has tried to change all the grades at once. And that's really what Common Core tries to do. And they, in my opinion, they have not given enough time to the field to teachers to find out what the Common Core is all about, let alone to develop materials for teachers to use uh, in implementing the Common Core. And one of the unfortunate things about the Common Core is the way it's been tied to the race to the top and the way in which uh, assessment has been driving so much of it. And um, I think it's premature to have these assessments when we haven't really figured out how to implement the Common Core in the classroom. Yeah, I think the testing is a, a big issue that has kind of come along with Common Core, but it's not the same thing as the Common Core standards themselves. And I think, too, like you're saying, there needs to be some kind of revision process, because now as some states are having second thoughts about you know, adopting the Common Core, I feel like if there was a revision process to take the good aspects of Common Core and improve upon them, you know, continually into the future, that might, I think, allow some states to more fully stay on board with them. That's right. We, do, we don't really know which parts of the Common Core work well and which ones not. We have, here in Georgia, we have some sense about which grades are going better than others, but we don't, as, as a, a nation, we don't really know which parts of that Common Core framework are, are really working and which ones are not. And that's a big shame, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, it, not enough uh, effort was made to invest in acquainting teachers with what's in the Common Core. And it's clear to me that a lot of the reaction against it comes from people who really don't know what's in it. Yeah. Well, we could probably have a whole second interview on Common Core because I know there's a lot of issues and a lot of people are thinking about it now. But uh, I'd like to yeah, continue to kind of explore your career 
um, because one of the things that I'm most impressed when I was looking over various aspects of what you've done, you've done a lot of historical analyses, um, and I've used some of those even in my doctoral classes and things, and you've also traveled quite extensively. So, I mean, you've traveled to South America, Central America, Europe, Africa, Asia, New Zealand. I'm probably missing some. Um, and going and working with mathematics educators from all around the world. So I'm just curious how you see that historical look and the historical perspective and how you see the international perspective playing into your scholarship and how you think about mathematics education. Well, the history story is a little bit ironic because when I was in high school and college, I really didn't enjoy history. I didn't have good <laughs> history teachers. It turns out my, both of my sons started in mathematics and ended in history, and my mother graduated in history from Illinois. But I didn't get the history bug, and I've, I've not been trained as a historian. But in recent years, I've worked... I, Everything I've learned about doing history, I've learned from George Stanick, who's my, who's my retired colleague here at Georgia. And he's a historian, and I just sort of follow him. But it's been important for me to try to find out what has happened in our field. What, the people who went before us, uh, what did they manage to accomplish? That, that gives a perspective uh, on our own work. And I'm, I'm always interested in the fact that in particular, for example, in research, that the students who come into our program don't think anybody did any research before, I don't know, 1960. That's way back in their view. And they just don't have a sense of, of what the field has accomplished. So in some of my writings, I've tried to bring out that historical aspect. With respect to going to other countries, it wasn't until I traveled to other countries, and the first time I went was when I was a faculty member at Teachers Colleges, and Howard Fair, who, who retired from there, I really sort of took his place, but he ran a curriculum project there that was very dependent on European mathematicians, and he ended up taking me to a conference in France where I met a lot of eminent mathematicians and mathematics educators. And it wasn't until I got so outside of the U.S. and looked back at it from France and then later from England with Alan Bishop at Cambridge, and then later it, from Germany, that I could see some of the features of our education system that hadn't been obvious to me because I, you know, it's, it's like the fish discovering water. I hadn't <laughs> been aware of all of the special conditions that we have in our country that are different from the way mathematics is, is taught and learned in other countries. So the international aspect of, of math education has been really important to me, and I've, I've done what I could to try to help other people in other countries figure out what they might do in the way of research in our field. Mm -hmm. And are you still doing international travels even now? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm going over to uh, Oslo to give a course with some other people uh, at the end of November, uh, and that will be for doctoral students over there. And interestingly, I'm involved in, a, in an international committee of 10 people to study the education programs in Israel. And there are eight major universities in Israel that have education programs, and we've, we went over there in March, we've gone over there in, in July, and we're going back over there in 
December, each time visiting a couple of universities, spending a couple days there, talking to faculty, reading the report, the self-study report that they've done, and offering them advice in our final report on how they might improve what they're doing in education. It's a kind of outsider thing. Seven of the members of the committee are from the States, uh, two are from Israel, and one is from the Netherlands. So, and I'm the only one who's a math educator, so I'm particularly interested in the math ed program over there in Israel. It's kind of a paradox. They are overrepresented internationally in stellar math educators, and yet their programs aren't necessarily moving forward the way they should. And uh, it's not clear to me exactly what's going wrong there, but there is a kind of split between mathematicians and math educators in Israel that I hope maybe our report can do something to resolve because we don't, we have, of course, people on different sides of the fence here in this country, but I, one of the things that has been important to me has been to work together with mathematicians to try to see what kind of common ground we could forge. I've discovered that if you get people down off the platform and take the microphones away from them and have them sit around the table and work on a common project, you can actually get quite a bit done. And that's exactly what happened in adding it up. We had mathematicians with very different points of view. We had math educators with very different points of view. We had teachers. We had other people. We managed mm -hmm. to get the 16 very diverse people who didn't know each other before we started working on that project to come to some consensus because we sat around and talked it out. We worked together on a common project. And I'm very optimistic that Israel could do the same. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also curious for the research community in the United States or just the broad mathematics education research community, what do you see as a current need for research right now where we can put some empirical efforts to try to understand? Well, I, I guess one of the, the biggest thing that, I, that comes to my mind is that one of the things that worries me so much, and it, it's been prompted a, lo a lot by what's happening with the Common Core, is that we don't trust teachers. And I think we could do a lot more to educate teachers so that they could assess certain qualities in their kids, in the kids that they are teaching. Uh, in other countries, teachers get, it's considered part of your job at the end of the year after you've given exams to your students to go, and these are written out exams, to go over those written exams of your students and of other people's students to try to get a better picture of what these kids know and can do mathematically. And instead, we, we have all these standardized tests, which are not necessarily good instruments for that purpose. So I'd like us to think, I'd like researchers to think about teachers as instruments for gathering data from the children that they teach all year. If you wanted to find out something about whether a kid had a productive disposition toward mathematics, the teacher who's had that kid all year potentially could offer you a better reading on that kid's disposition than any kind of paper and pencil instrument you could dream up. Mm -hmm. So I, mm -hmm. I think one of the areas we need to work on is not, not just developing teachers' capacity to do 
assessment, but also studying it. What does it take to help teachers do this? What do they need in the way of support? Because right now, we're not supporting them. And in fact, we're treating them as though they don't know how to assess. And I think that's a big mistake. The other thing, mm -hmm. more generally, is that we need to start taking a, a deeper look at teacher knowledge altogether. And uh, there's a lot of work going on on that right now, but I think we could do even more by spreading out what we mean by teacher knowledge of mathematics and of pedagogy and studying that in greater detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of work, especially at the elementary level, but bringing some of that same depth to middle school and high school level and breaking it into different domains and topics. That's right. The, the kind of thing that we did uh, in adding it up has been extended somewhat to the secondary level by um, people in, working on a project with Penn State and the University of Georgia and uh, they're about to publish a book on that question mm. of mathematical understanding for secondary teaching which follows up on the work that was done and adding it up. Well I have one last question that I always ask my guests um, and so we've been talking across your career in math education but now I'm wondering if you had not been in mathematics education, what do you think you would have been doing instead? Well, I can't imagine that I would have been in anything but education because, as I say, my whole family has gone into that area, and I just always assumed that I would be a teacher, but I didn't necessarily know a teacher of what. So if I hadn't gone to Berkeley and majored in mathematics but instead had gone into another teacher education institution or had decided to major in uh, another field, it, pro it probably would have been English. I, I majored in mathematics at Berkeley, minored in English, and so I, for my student teaching year, my graduate year, I spent half the year teaching English in a junior high school in Berkeley, and the other half of the year teaching mathematics in, uh, teaching high school in another city outside of Berkeley. So um, if I hadn't pursued mathematics, I think I would have pursued English. Uh, mm -hmm. Any of my students will tell you that uh, I, when they receive a paper back from me, I can't read a paper without editing it, whether it's with paper and, and pencil or on the computer. And so everybody who hands me a paper gets it back with lots of editorial comments and suggestions. Yeah, I mean, we're interested in mathematics and mathematics teaching and learning, but really this job is very much writing and very much about communicating ideas. I took a course with Joan Farini-Mundy at Michigan State, and she said this was a doctoral course, so we're going to become you know, faculty members, and she right. said, you're really becoming a writer, and your genre of writing is this kind of mathematics education research or scholarly writing. But really, you're going to be a writer. That's your job. And um, so I can see how kind of your, your overlap with uh, interests in English and things like that right. makes actually a lot of sense. Well, she, she's absolutely right. And, and one of the problems that people go into doctoral programs in mathematics education with is that they've been sitting in math courses where, for the most part, they haven't been expected to do much writing. And so mm -hmm. their writing skills are not necessarily polished and that's one yeah, of the things or writing you know, yeah they write proofs but that's a different kind yeah, of writing well, yes writing a proof is not the same as, as writing up a, a research mm -hmm. study in mathematics education mm -hmm. so it takes it takes some doing to learn how to do that and uh, that we spend a lot of our time 
working on that. Uh, my, on my committee was the psychologist Lee Kronbach, and he hmm. taught me a lot about writing. Some people said when when he died that some of his former students said that they, when they got papers back from him, he had written more than they had. Uh, <laughs> I do remember uh, when I was working on my dissertation, uh, and I had created a chapter that had some case studies in it, and he convinced me that those case studies needed to go. So I took them out, but it was hard. I, I said it was like learning to perform surgery on your own child. So hmm. that's what I try to convince students to do, is to be able to perform surgery on the stuff that they've written. If you can't write and revise, uh, you're in trouble. Well, that's one of the things I discovered as an editor. Time after time, I would send back a manuscript with suggestions and indications of what needed to be changed and what the reviewers thought should be changed. We'd get it back, and it was hardly changed at all. People have a hard hmm. time performing surgery on their own child. Mm -hmm. It takes effort because you've, you've put time and energy into it, and so you don't want to just lop it off. That's but right. Sometimes that will, that will make the whole thing better. Right. You've created it. It's, it's your child. And so it's really hard to make a change. You wrote it. You like what you wrote, and you think it's fine. But um, the reviewers mm -hmm. d didn't necessarily, and uh, it's just very hard to get people, most people, to engage in severe editing of their own work. And I, it was one of yeah. the things that I learned from Lee Kronbach. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking with Jeremy Kilpatrick from the University of Georgia. Jeremy, thanks so much for taking the time to be here with us. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.